turn together to the book of Psalms, Psalm 130. A song of degrees. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say, more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities." The grass withers and the flower may fall, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The text I call your attention to is the first three verses of that psalm. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, Psalm 130 is a song of degrees, also known as a song of ascent. This means this was a psalm which was sung by God's people when they were on pilgrimage to Jerusalem for one of the feast days. Though there were valleys that the pilgrims would have to pass through on their way from the regions of Judea to Jerusalem, The way to Jerusalem generally was uphill. It was in ascent. And then when the city of Jerusalem was reached, the temple, where all of the festivals and the sacrifices took place, was at the highest point of the city. So we might imagine the people of God singing the words of this psalm, Psalm 130, as they made their way gradually up toward the city and then up toward the temple mount where they would offer the sacrifices and take part in the festival. Psalm 130 is a fitting psalm to consider on the occasion of preparatory. And that's because the people of God who ascended the mount of Jerusalem on these occasions did so with a sense of repentance. They ascended the mount of God, recognizing their need for God's forgiveness. They were going up to the temple on the top of the mount to view the sacrifice, which was the shedding of blood for their sins. It was their faith in the Messiah which moved them to go to Jerusalem and to view the slain lamb on the altar, which represented the sacrifice that God would make in a type In church history, 
Psalm 130 has been recognized in light of this as one of the penitential psalms. There are seven penitential psalms. The others are Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, and Psalm 143, the last of which we sang earlier in Psalter 389. The penitential psalms have been recognized by the church in history as expressing in very striking ways the experience of God's people under the conviction of sin and repentance, and as they look unto God out of that sense of conviction for His forgiveness and redemption. So along with the church of the Old Testament, who ascended the hill of the Lord, and along with the church of the New Testament, who recognized this psalm as expressing the experience of God's people of repentance and faith, we now consider our text on this occasion of preparatory and to examine ourselves before coming to the Lord next week to partake of His body and blood. The theme of the sermon this evening is crying to God from the depths. In the first place, we will identify the dreadful position the psalmist is in from which he makes this cry. Secondly, we will identify what that cry itself is that comes out of the depths. And then we'll conclude by noticing that the psalmist makes this petition, this cry, with confidence that God will hear him. Crying to God from the depths, first the, the dreadful position, secondly the desperate cry, and then finally the confident petition. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Imagine you have fallen overboard into deep cold water and you do not know how to swim. Before anybody noticed you were gone, your head slipped beneath the waves and you began to sink down, down, down. It was not long before you passed beyond the reach of any help and still you sink deeper and deeper into the darkness. Your ears pop. You feel the pressure of the water building all around you. You're terrified. You're unable to hold your breath much longer. Soon you will die in the depths, never again seeing the light of day, never again experiencing and enjoying the light of the sun. You're like Jonah. Jonah, who said this after he was thrown overboard into the Mediterranean Sea and was sinking down into the waters. Jonah 2, verse 5, The waters compassed me about even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. That's one figure that we might draw from that word the psalmist chooses to describe his position, the depths. Here's another figure that might have been more 
directly relevant to the psalmist's own experience. Picture yourself traveling to Jerusalem, a pilgrim on the way to one of the feasts. You have a bag of money on your belt. You have a couple of animals that you are leading along for sacrifices, but otherwise you are alone and unarmed. To get to Jerusalem, you must pass through a valley, a place of darkness and shadows, full of enemies and dangers. There are robbers there. There are murderers hiding in the valleys. Robbers and murderers who regularly ambush, bypassing pilgrims whom they know are on their way to the feast in a vulnerable position. And you sense there in the darkness of the valley that you are being watched, that you are being followed. The depths. The depths are a dreadful position in which to find yourself. If you are in the depths, there is no cry from you that can be heard by anybody else. The traveler in the valley is too far from the city for his cry to be heard by the guards who are positioned on the watchtowers. The voice of the man who has fallen overboard has already been muffled and silenced by the churning of the waves. Out of the depths, there is no way of escape. That man is too far down to be reached, even if the sailors were to throw a lifeline to try to save him. Those murdering robbers are too callous to allow such an easy, vulnerable prey to escape their clutches if once he comes into their hands. Therefore, to be in the depths is to be on the brink of perishing. The depths is that place where hope fades away. This man will drown. His corpse will drift down to the lowest part of the sea from whence it will never return. He will be stabbed in the back, his money and goods stolen, his body cast into a ditch, far from the walls of Jerusalem, far from the overshadowing presence of Jehovah in his temple, which was his destination. Beloved, have you ever found yourself sinking into the depths Perhaps you've never experienced the terror of feeling that you are about to drown or the fear that somebody's following you in a deep, dark valley far from home. But have you been in the depths of trouble? Have you been in the depths of sorrow in your soul, of anguish, fear, or anxiety? Surrounded by family and friends on the holidays, have you felt alone? sitting in a room filled with bright, warm sunshine, have you felt cold? Though safe from all apparent dangers to your body, have you sensed that there are enemies lurking in the shadows? Do you feel removed from help, so far removed from help that even if you cried, even if you could get the words out, Nobody would hear you, or if they did hear you, they wouldn't understand. God's children sometimes find themselves sinking into the depths for various reasons. The trials of life may come on strong for a time, plunging God's child into the depths of heartache and pain and suffering. A young woman 
with little children still clinging to her legs, may be plunged into the depths of frustration, fear, and isolation when betrayed by a faithless husband. A young man may find the weight of all of his responsibilities suffocating. He's under pressure at work. He's under pressure as a father, under pressure as a husband, under pressure with his responsibilities at church, under pressure with his responsibilities on the school board or on this committee that he has been called to serve, and he feels overwhelmed, anxious. How can he hold up under all of the weight of what he is called to do? The painful emptiness and grief after the death of a child or the loss of a close friend or spouse and feel like falling into a deep, dark pit. Or maybe the child of God finds himself in the depths and apparently there is no reason for it at all. One morning he wakes up happy and he has a normal day. The next morning he wakes up feeling despair. This child of God is a sinner, of course, like every other child of God, but there is no obvious connection between some specific sin that he has committed and the torment that he now feels in his soul. He has trials of life just like all of God's people do, but there is no momentous, life-altering trial that is currently afflicting him, and yet he finds himself in the depths. Depression sometimes comes out of the blue, and it makes life a weariness. And there's apparently no reason for it. And in these depths, the child of God wonders, will I ever return to the land of the living? Will I ever enjoy the happiness of the days that were before? Or will I be overcome? Will I perish? Certainly, the believer experiences the trials of life, the trial of depression, and of all related sorrows as depths. Yet there are depths even deeper than these. For the child of God, the deepest depths, the darkest depths, the coldest and most dreadful and most life-draining depths are the depths that come from the consciousness of his own personal sin and guilt before his God. And it is especially to these depths that our text draws our attention. These are the words of the psalmist in verse 3. Having Cried out from the depths, he says in verse 3, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, Lord, who should stand? Iniquity is guilt. It's guilt on account of sin. Sinner is the man who has perverted the righteousness of God by disobeying God's law. And to pervert God's righteous law is a terribly serious thing, for God's law is a reflection of God's own righteous character. The sinner is therefore liable to be condemned in God's righteous judgment, and condemnation means punishment, and it must be a punishment that fits the crime. And the only punishment that fits the crime 
is to be cast into the depths, the deepest and darkest depths of all, which is the chasm of hell, which the Bible describes in some places as a bottomless pit. But maybe Jehovah God is not paying attention to the iniquities of men. Maybe He's not keeping track. Is that a possibility? He says, if, if thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand? Is, is that if giving a sense that maybe the Lord, after all, will not mark iniquities? Maybe, after all, He's not paying attention? And that the guilty sinner will escape the condemnation of God and will escape those depths? Oh no, the Lord marks iniquities. He keeps track. If there is any hint of uncertainty in that little word, if, it's purely rhetorical. Proverbs 15 verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Everywhere you go, everything you do, there the eyes of the Lord are, watching observing, marking. Exodus 34 verse 7 says, The Lord will by no means clear the guilty, but rather He visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children. The Lord who is righteous, who knows all and who sees all, will not fail to mark iniquities. He has a long list, and on that list, He has written down the names of every person Every person who has sinned against him and next to every one of those names is a long list of every sin, beginning with the sin in which every person was conceived and born from his mother's womb and then all of the actual sins that that person has committed, God has written them down. He's marked them. Now one sinner whose iniquities are marked in God's book Shall stand. O Lord, who shall stand? Again, that's rhetorical. The answer to the question clearly is no one. Not one person. No one whose iniquities, whose guilt, whose transgression against the holiness and majesty of God, not one shall stand. For in thy sight shall no man living be justified, David says in Psalm 143. Everyone whose iniquities are marked shall fall. They will fall legally before the righteous tribunal of a God, of God who does not treat sin lightly. But then when the guilty verdict is pronounced over the head of the guilty sinner, they will fall actually into that deep, dark, bottomless pit of the wrath and judgment of God in hell. The hands of the living God will thrust them there. Now it's true that that statement in verse 3 applies to the worlds of unbelieving men. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquity, O Lord, who shall stand? That applies to all men, including the unbelieving men. The unbeliever is guilty before God. He has perverted God's law with his daily disobedience. His iniquities have been marked by the all-seeing eyes of God, which are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. The unbeliever is liable to condemnation and punishment by the righteous judgment of God. 
The unbeliever therefore finds himself in the depths of misery. That is actually and objectively his condition. He is conceived and born as a sinner, emerges into this world which is nothing but a valley of the shadow of death, and he lives his whole life under the cloud of God's wrath and judgment until finally he dies and is thrust into the place of punishment. That's true. The psalmist is not referring so much to the sin of the unbeliever. He's not referring so much to sin as it applies to the human race. What he's troubled with and what's making him to cry out is his own sin. The psalmist is thinking about that guilt which is unique to him. He perverted God's law. He disobeyed. He made himself guilty. And he did it deliberately. Yes, he was conceived and born in sin. That was apart from any action he took. And yet, his hands took things that did not belong to him. His mind thought things that were contrary to God's law. His mouth spoke things that were hurtful to his neighbor. He did it deliberately. He did it consciously. He did it willfully. And what makes his sin particularly horrendous to him is his knowledge that he has committed this sin as God's child. The psalmist committed his sin against his father. His father who loved him. His father who knew him and chose him with an eternal love. It's one thing for God to look over the race of men who hate him, who curse his name, who shake their fist at him, who want nothing to do with him, and to mark their iniquities. It's quite another thing when God looks at his own child and marks iniquities in him. So the psalmist finds himself deep in the depths. His experience is the experience that our canons describe in the fifth head. The fifth head of doctrine, article 5, speaking of the falls of David and Peter and other saints in Scripture, it says, by such enormous sins, they very highly offend God They incur a deadly guilt. They grieve the Holy Spirit. They interrupt the exercise of faith. Very grievously, they wound their consciences. And sometimes, they lose the sense of God's favor for a time. That's what he's talking about. He has the strong, overwhelming sense that God's favor is not upon him. 
He's not welcome in God's presence. He's in exile. He's in banishment. He's cast out. He has no access to the throne of grace. The countenance of God toward him is a countenance of anger. And whether or not that's actually true, it's not. That's how he feels in his soul. And there's no deeper depths that can be found for the child of God. Perhaps some of us sitting here this evening do not need to have a specific time of self-examination in order to call to mind some particular sin or guilt that is constantly besetting us, coming up again and again in our lives. Perhaps there is a sin that is sitting on your conscience that you carry around with you everywhere you go. Maybe you find yourself crying at night regularly because you cannot stop thinking about that sin, a sin that you hate, but it seems like it's impossible to get rid of. And you say, the good that I will what I do not, and the evil that I would not, that I do. Maybe you are afraid as that sin weighs upon your conscience that after all, you are not loved by God because how could God love such a horrible sinner? How could I be anything other than the object of his wrath and displeasure? And your experience is that you find yourself in the depths of And the hope of deliverance seems to fade away. But even if there is no specific besetting sin that seems to go around with you everywhere you go, every child of God knows what this is like. Every one of us has perverted the righteous law of God. Every one of us has committed the very same sins according to which God judges the wicked and casts them into hell. We do not come to that conclusion in our week of self-examination. Then we need to examine ourselves again. And we need to examine ourselves properly. And we need to consider that the wrath of God against sin, our sins, is so great that God cannot leave it unpunished. Out of the depths, I cry. No cry is more desperate than the cry which arises out of the depths. Who will hear such a cry? The traveler is too far from the city for his voice to be heard by the watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem. The voice of the drowning man has been silenced by the waves. Even if his cry is somehow heard, maybe the watchmen hear a faint echo way off in the distance. Who is going to come to help him? Who will be able to help him? By the time the watchmen get to him, the traveler's goods will be stolen. His body will be dead in a ditch and the robbers will be a long way away. Who would be willing to help the person who is in the depths? To help this desperate crier would require plunging yourself into the depths to go along with him. And what good would that do for the drowning man for you now to plunge yourself and die alongside of him? It's a desperate cry. But as desperate a cry as it may be, the psalmist cries it nonetheless. 
And he cries not without purpose. From a certain point of view, you could say this cry comes out of him instinctively. It comes out of him with much thought, simply due to the peril that he's in, the way that you would scream if you were in an awful situation. But that does not mean his cry lacks all intention. It's not as though he cries thinking to himself that he will cry only in vain and will not be heard. The amazing thing is, he expects to be heard. Even in this dreadful position where all hope seems to fade away and the weight of iniquity presses down on him, who is he? Who is this crier? He's one of God's children. He belongs to Israel. Not merely that outward nation of Israel, but the Israel of God. He's one of God's elect. He's a believer. This elect, believing child of God has fallen into the depths of sin. There was a time when he wasn't in those depths. And then he began to imagine to himself, perhaps, that this sin isn't such a problem. This temptation isn't such a big deal. I can dabble in it. I can do this thing that is contrary to God's law. Perhaps he began to think to himself, God will not mark my sins. God will not mark my sins. I'm one of God's children. I belong to Israel. I've been baptized in the church. Even if I dabble in sin a little bit, God will forgive me just like he always has. That's how he imagined to himself. And as he imagined those things to himself, he leaned over the edge of the boat and leaned a little bit more until finally he fell overboard. And now he's drifting down, down, down. So out of the depths he cries. He cries as a believer, but he cries as a repentant believer. He understands better now the horror and the misery of sin. He understands better now how seriously God takes these matters. And he's sorry. The sin which clings to him because of his foolishness, he hates it now. He desires deliverance. The church did not name Psalm 130 a penitential psalm without reason. The one who cries out of the depths is the penitent believer. And he cries. What does he cry? Well, he cries about the dreadfulness of his position. From his point of view, in his own strength or in the strength of any other men who may be around him, his position is a hopeless position. He cannot escape himself. He cannot stop himself from sinking further down. He is out of the reach of others and he knows it. He recognizes his sin. He hates that sin. He confesses his sin, but still he finds himself falling into that sin. He cannot get out from under the great weight of guilt which is piled on top of him. He cannot erase his iniquities which have been carefully marked by God in his record book. He cries then. He cries to express the desperation of his circumstances. Father, Father, I'm going to drown. I'm here in the valley and I'm going to be killed. And there's nothing I can do to stop it. Father, help me.
Do you feel trapped in a sin? Perhaps you're afraid to cry out to God. You don't know what to say. You fear coming to God with your sin because you know He despises that sin. And you fear losing that sin which your heart has come to to enjoy. So you think, what do I cry? What do I say? Well, begin with this. Father, I don't know what to do. I'm afraid. I'm helpless. I need you. I need you to save me. That's the cry that God wants to hear. He doesn't only want to hear of your resolve not to do it again. He wants to hear you cry to Him for help. Help me. Nobody else can help me. I can't help myself. He cries regarding the desperation of His situation. But that's not all. He cries for salvation. The word supplication in verse 2. Hear my voice, let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Refers specifically to a request for grace. In Solomon's prayer at the temple dedication, Solomon used that word to describe a supplication, a prayer he was making when he was asking for God to forgive his people. Hearken therefore unto the supplications of thy servant and of thy people Israel, and when thou hearest, forgive. The psalmist cries out for the restoration of that sense of God's favor that he had lost. Let thy face shine upon me once more, Father. Let me know thy loving kindness once again. Let me return out of the depths back to the land of the living where hope does not fade away. The cry of the psalmist is the cry for forgiveness. I know, O God, that thou art not a God who will have fellowship with sinners. So let the barrier of my guilt and sin be removed. Let your record book in which all of my iniquities appear be wiped clean. Let my conscience be at rest. Let my fellowship with you be sweet once again. The cry of the psalmist effectively is a cry for Jesus Christ. Come down here, Father. Come down here, Lord Jesus Christ. Come down into the depths with me where nobody else can go, where nobody else will go. Save me. And that's exactly what he did. You understand that, right? That's what the Lord Jesus Christ did. In fact, he descended into depths that you will never descend into, that you will never have to descend into. Though your experience of life can sometimes be darkness, You will never have to descend into the darkness of hell. You will never enter into the bottomless pit with the Lord Jesus Christ. He did. All the blackness of hell came up around him on that cross. He experienced not just 
the sense that he had lost God's favor. But he lost God's favor. He was forsaken. And he did that so that our iniquities might be removed. So that in the judgment, we might stand. And that's why the, the, the penitent believer cries out with the confidence that he will be heard. The confidence of the psalmist is evident by the boldness with which he makes his petition. Verse 2, Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Lord, hear. Lord, be attentive. Pay attention to me. He's not just making a request. He's making a demand. And this boldness is not irreverent on his part. It's a boldness on the one hand that's born out of his relationship. God is his father and he is the child. But it's a boldness also that is born out of his desperation. A child who is being attacked viciously by a dog is not disrespecting his father when he cries out, Dad, help me! Listen to my voice! Come here, save me! The psalmist knows that God will hear him and his confidence is that God does indeed love him as his child and will pull him out of the depths. He's confident exactly because he's a believer. God has given to him faith and even if that faith sometimes becomes very, very small, almost imperceptible. It's there. It's God's gift to him. And because God has given him the gift of faith, he was able to recognize his misery in the depths. In the first place, the unbeliever lives his whole life in the depths. Ultimately, he's cast into hell and he never realizes that he's there until the judgment of God falls upon him in the end. But the believer knows out of his faith he repents of his sins and he cries out to God and by faith he expects that God will hear him and that God will deliver him from the depths for faith is not only knowledge yes, I know that I have God I know that I have a Father but it's confidence and the faith that the psalmist has is a well-grounded faith His faith is in God, the living covenant God, Jehovah. His faith is in the God who chose him. His faith is in the God who sent Jesus Christ into the depths of hell for his redemption. For the sake of Jesus Christ, his son, God always hears the cries of his people and he always delivers them, reaching down his long, strong arm into the depths to pull them out, to restore unto them the sense of his love and favor. Beloved, have you found yourselves in the depths? Yes, 
calling of the word of God to you is repent. Repent of your sins. The believer who is delivered from the depths is always the penitent believer. And deliverance is always in the way of repentance. But it's not only repent. It's also believe. Believe that you have a God who hears your cries. Believe that you have a God who's not going to use that sin against you when you confess it to him and acknowledge it before him, but he's going to put that sin away at great cost to himself. Believe that you are never outside of his reach. He will reach you, for he loves you. And his love for you is a love that knows no depths. Do you understand that? It knows no depths. May the Lord bless us as we examine ourselves this week. And may we come confident that God hears our cries and he will certainly feed and nourish our souls unto everlasting life when we partake of the body and blood of our Lord at his table. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, out of the depths we cry unto Thee, and we ask Thee that Thou would hear our petitions and our supplications as we look unto Thee for grace and forgiveness and redemption. And we pray, let us not lose hope, let us not lose heart, even if our experience of life is darkness for a time, that the light of Thy Word and of thy gracious countenance shine in upon our souls. And we pray, O Father, that thou wilt bless us as we, with repentance and faith, examine ourselves this week and bring us, O Father, into the joy of the table of our Lord next Sunday. You are our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.